Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. An ongoing conversation with ministry leaders about embracing complexity and uncertainty with joy and faithfulness. Hey everybody, this is Beth Daniel and I am here with my friend and colleague in ministry, Brian Wallace. Brian is the suffragan bishop for the Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others. He also served as the executive director of Fuller Center for Spiritual Formation and previously worked with InterVarsity and has been a pastor for many years. So I'm glad to talk to you again, Brian. It's good to be with you again, friend. Our last conversation, we discussed several topics, including the hallmarks or the practices of what makes a flourishing human. And we talked about that through the lens, obviously, of ministry leadership. And you helped us know steps we could take so that we wouldn't be flailing, but could move towards flourishing. And at the end of that podcast, I asked you, given all that you see that's not flourishing in leadership and in the church, did you still have hope for the church? And your response was, yes, but. And so I'd love to continue our conversation talking about that yes, but. You have hope for the church because God loves the church, but maybe not in its current form. So I would love for you to start by just talking about what you meant by that. Absolutely. And let me just say really loudly at the very beginning that hope for all of us who follow Jesus is critical to our formation. We have to hold on to the reality that God is in control, that he loves us, that he's present, and that he's working in the church. And I believe all those things. I've banked my entire life on that. And I've seen him changed a lot of lives as he loves people, even in hard contexts or in broken churches or in the broken Western church, which I think we have to pay attention to. But let me just say, I think we have to, in the midst of hope, have the willingness to shine a light on the things about our church. And I say our church because I am a product of that church and I have propagated that church as a pastor and now as a bishop. I have to own some of that. But we have to acknowledge and shine a light on some of the ways that the church is not actually being the church that God invented and God intended. And let me just say, primarily as it gets to formation and adult formation in the context of making people into the image of Jesus, we've absorbed what I think is a syncretistic understanding of how the world works. We've kind of absorbed our world's understanding to kind of think about how to become Christians and how to make Christians and how to live our life out in the context of church. You know, I think it began in the data revolution of the early 1900s. And it was an amazing time of incredible progress out of the Enlightenment, out of the Industrial Revolution. We began to have understanding of the universe in a new way. And there was this hope that we could learn our way into making the world better. And if we think about that promise, there's a lot of stuff that actually happened, that technological revolution that really has changed everything about the way we live our lives. We also eradicated polio. We have an understanding of vaccines. We now have penicillins. So much about the world is better because of what we have learned and understood about data in our universe. But the church experienced all of that and began to think, oh, wow, we can inform our way into the image of Jesus. So think about what happened from the early 1950 in the First World War to about 1945, right after the Second World War. Almost every Christian book publishing house, every Christian college and university, so many of our seminaries were started in that space as a way of saying, hey, we can inform 
the church into the image of Jesus. We began to believe that information would equal actual transformation. And think about the church itself. You don't see a church built, a building built from that time that doesn't have education space. It used to be a worship space and maybe a fellowship hall. So the church was centered around worshiping Jesus and the scriptures and fellowshipping together, having a meal together, sharing life together. And now the church is centered around education because we really have begun to believe that we can inform people into the image of Jesus. And we have to pay attention to how failed an experiment that is. The division of our church, the division of our nation, people who have tremendous knowledge of God without having the character of God, because we believe that we can actually live this way and become more like Christ in that way. Brian, do you have an example that comes to mind? Early in the 80s, I was just starting on a university staff, and I met a good friend named David who had just finished a master's degree at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Amazing seminary, great place to be, great place to study. And he was just starting his first year at law school at Duke. And I was just asking him over dinner one night, like, why did you do this master's degree and now you're in law school? And he actually said, it's because people with a theological degree can actually be more like Christ than people without one. Now, that was that idea that we can inform ourselves into the image of Jesus played out in a person's life very specifically. Now, I don't think he necessarily believes that anymore, but he was actually taking seriously what the church was telling him. The more you know, the more you'll be like God. He spent money on it. He arranged his life on it. And so I respect him. He was pursuing Jesus the best he could. And so many people are doing the same thing. I don't disrespect that knowledge or education. I think it's really helpful. I worked at a seminary for a long time. Let's be clear. But J.R. Packer said in the introduction to his book, Knowing God, that the simple Bible reader intent on doing what he reads will become more like Christ than the most studied seminary professor content on just knowing and not doing. That's a somewhat of a paraphrase. And so when I recognize that the most godly person I've ever met in my entire life was my grandfather, who had a sixth grade education from a one-room schoolhouse and spent his life as a dairy farmer and then taking care of people who are mentally and physically handicapped. He lived his life in Christ. And if you asked him about his life, he would say, I read the Bible every day and I just try to do it. One time I was sitting with him, and it was about four or five years after my grandmother had died, and he knew I was a pastor. He had a question theologically for me, and he said, this is my devotional guide. And on one side, it had the word Steve on it, and on the next page, it had the word Joyce on it. And he was, when it says Joyce, I hear the voice of the scriptures in her voice. Is that okay? And of course, I burst into tears and said, yes, grandfather, that's okay to hear the scriptures in your wife's voice that you were married to for 65 years. He listened to the scriptures every day and was content on doing what it said. And his life was arranged around giving dignity to other people. It was a little crazy. I would go into his barn and he was painting a chair. It was a brand new chair too. And I was like, grandfather, why are you painting this chair in this weird color too? And he said, well, Charlie loves scraping paint and we ran out of stuff for him to scrape. So think about the ludicrous love that was expressed in that. Him just living out a way of giving Charlie dignity and a place to play in a community that was a home. And he did that tons of times. Everyone had a role. Everyone had a job that was suited to them and that they loved doing. And he loved giving place and community. And so one of the things my grandfather understood was that in order to become like Jesus, you had to live in a community of Jesus. 
And in the church that we live in now, we have arranged everything around consuming spiritual goods and services, consuming information. Come and hear a sermon. And by the way, in this information revolution, sermons have gotten a lot longer. They used to be 13, 14 minute homilies, and now they're 45, 50 minute some places. And in some churches that I've actually worked at, you start the service with a song because you can't start it with a sermon, and you end with a song because you can't end with a sermon. (laughs) And we center information, usually from one human being that we've centered on a stage, rather than using the service as a formative way of helping people connect to God and to each other. So we've centered information in the context of local church instead of centering relationships. And so for us to actually move away from a model of information equals transformation, we need to use a what I call a more complicated calculus of formation, that it's informed practice in a reflective community over time. So we need just enough information, just like my grandfather, just enough to try to enact the kingdom around me. And then I need to reflect on that. Is it working? Is it working for me? Am I becoming who I'm supposed to be? And then doing that over time again and again and again. That is what changes and transforms a life, not the information I might consume and store in my head or heart. It's living life together. So the practices that we need to engage and change in the church is we need to center the church around relationships. And that's challenging because we have small groups. Almost every church I've ever worked with has small groups. But small groups become a dumping ground for all the needs of the church. It's the primary place of community, the primary place of prayer, the primary place of Bible study, the primary place of frontline care and emergency service, because it's the only relational space. But that means the small group leader has to be more capable than the most educated pastor on staff, because it's an impossible job. And so how do we just help the small groups be a place where people are accompanying one another in their relationship to Jesus over time and living the life of Christ out? over time. Now, it sounds pretty complicated, but it's actually pretty simple. So, Brian, I heard you say, we believe the more we know, the more we will be like God. And that was just such a striking thing, reflective of the fall. We are forgetful people. We haven't really learned anything since this idea of if we know we will be like God. And you're right, it hasn't bore the fruit that we had hoped. But many of us in ministry leadership, this is how we've been educated. We have been educated and trained for a church that is changing so rapidly. We have all these tools and none of them seem useful in this moment. So I've done my whole ministry in the area of discipleship. But even that has changed from this idea of Christian education to discipleship and now moving to faith formation. And all of those have important and distinct characteristics. We've talked about how things are passing away, but what's emerging as ministry leaders? What do we do in this moment? Yeah, I think one of the challenges is it takes a lot of courage because we have been educated and we're employed into systems where people have been trained to expect certain things from us, that we are the most knowledgeable people in the room, that we have the most skills and training about what to do in certain contexts and situations. Instead of realizing, remember that Jesus called 12 disciples who were teenagers and really not well-formed. And through their life with Jesus, not the knowledge that they had and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in them changed the world. 
And it's because they learned how to accompany one another in their journeys with Christ and in the Spirit. And I love the stories of the Gospels where you see, say, Peter and John kind of vying for attention and then seeing how they support one another later on when the Spirit comes and fills them all. And they're in the middle of this challenging reality of proclaiming the gospel where they lived. They lived in deep community together. They shared things in common and they prayed for each other. I just have this picture, you know, in the book of Acts where Peter's giving that first sermon, which was an amazing sermon and lots of people come to Christ. I can just see John just leaning over and he's like, hey, this is your time. So they're no longer fighting with each other, but they're standing shoulder to shoulder saying, hey, go, man, go. And then John becomes the center of attention at some points because Peter's encouraging him to kind of go. And so it's no longer living into this individualism, but into this way of thinking about community as integral to my relationship to Jesus. That Christianity is a team sport. No one's ever been invited to follow Jesus by themselves. So we show up to church by ourselves. We sit on our pew by ourselves. And we absorb knowledge by ourselves. And we grab our coffee and we go. How do do we rearrange our understanding of the church to help people be face-to-face and accompany one another, stay next to each other? By the way, that's why I like being an Anglican, is because we say things to each other in our liturgy that I need to hear. I need to hear them not just from a sage on a stage, but from people who are just like me in the congregation. Things like the Holy Spirit's with you. You know how much I need to hear that every day? Because I'm being tempted to believe that God's mad at me, or I'm not enough, or I can do something that would make him go away from me. And my community tells me, they proclaim over me every Sunday, he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you, the Spirit's with you. And that's a way to accompany one another in the journey. I will say the Fuller Center for Spiritual Formation, our whole aim has been to help churches think about how to center formation around relationships. And give churches tools to be able to do that. It takes energy. It takes time. It takes concerted effort. But it's doable. It really can make a difference. You know, when I first started in ministry, it was about 20 years ago. And I know you've worked longer than that, Brian. But I was tasked with taking this model of Sunday school, which even that plays into that education, building, education, knowledge, information, download. You know it, you do it and to make a church of small groups. And we were questionably successful in that. Now I see small groups who are desperately looking for something to center them because now we've sprung so far to fellowship or reading a book or we don't know what we're doing. We don't actually know the Bible. And so it really is this very messy time when this idea of small groups, formation small groups, fellowship small groups, Sunday schools, lecture series, they all kind of exist at the same time. And I think it plays into that model of, hey, we're the church, we offer everything. There's something for everyone. So if you don't want to be known, just go to this lecture. And if you really want to have friends, you go to this small group and you don't want to deal with Bible study. So what do we do? I mean, we're in this moment. And what? so what do you see emerging? Where should we be leaning? How should we be pastoring and equipping those small group leaders that you are saying are crushing under the weight that we're carrying too? 
Yeah. Two things. One is I think the primary skill we as pastors need to teach is how to be a friend. The best thing we can do is teach people how to be friends. They desperately need friends and they desperately need to know how to befriend others, to help other people be safe, to have questions, to admit challenges, to confess sin, to ask for help, or to say, I'm great. I'm doing really well. All of that is really necessary. And the issue is we have to borrow from what I think is new technologies of education and learning. We can use the flipped classroom. We don't have to center our work around the lectures we give, but we can center information that we can get from outside and actually talk about it and try to live it out as a community of practice as a small group or as a medium-sized group or as a ladies' community or men's community. We have to think about the gathering as a relational opportunity to connect and tell the truth based on the information that we got outside. And that's some of the work that we're trying to do is try to teach the church, hey, you're filled with podcasts, you're filled with information out there. How do you take that and then live it out and face it? By the way, the only way to learn about yourself is to have someone tell you who you are. No one who's humble ever thinks they're humble. They're actually told by someone they love and someone who loves them, they're like, hey, you're really growing in humility. Or more often than not, you're not as humble as you think you are. (laughs) And so we need those kinds of friends who tell us the truth. I love your term that you often use, and that's the church's job is to make little Jesuses. And the debate is really how to do that. And I know you truly believe in practices and the importance of habits, spiritual habits and practices that we do. It used to be called discipline, and we don't like that. I like the word practices more too. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that we have to, as ministry leaders, we have to remember the function of what we do. And then the form is highly contextual. That's right. So the function of what we do is, as you would say, make little Jesuses. The form is highly contextual. And then I think maybe that will release those of us who are trying to do next to really focus on where we are, which may be changing. That's right. But the function of what we're trying to do is constant. Yeah, I totally agree. It always involves scripture and it always involves lots of different ways of praying. And, and this is the most important piece in every context, it involves community and relationships. And that's the big mason piece from the church. As long as we are centering relationships and the community of God's people, we're going to get it right. And I think the work of the ministry collaborative is to make sure that ministry leaders also have those relationships. Amen. Brian, thank you so much for being with us again today. I truly appreciate your insights. It's always a gift to talk to you. Thank you, Beth. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast, a project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation. The Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Our producer is Marthane Sanders. To find out more about our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org.